started off a little while ago uh, our service talking about the uh, search for life out there in the stars, uh, trying to find a, a planet that would be suitable where we could live and thrive and survive, a, a, a place where life could actually take take place. And I made the case, at least I tried just, just quickly, that that in essence is what it is to search for life, to search for truth, to search for that which is, is accords with what is, I guess you could say. Now, I realize a question could be asked trying to poke a hole in, in that uh, line of arguing. It would go something like, like this. Um, well, why, why are you saying that though there's got to be only one planet? What if there are, are, are multiple places maybe that you could touch down and, and things would work out? And my answer to that, that uh, question is simply this. Well, you need to understand when you carry this over to where I'm trying to go with that analogy is there's only one reality. There's only one reality, and so therefore there can only be one explanation, one accounting of it, ultimately speaking. Only one way to tell the full story truly. Okay, well then a counter-argument could come there to that. Well, but isn't it true that all the faiths, all the worldviews, all the religions are ultimately the same? Well... Maybe when you just look at them in a cursory sort of way at first, possibly, but no, not really. In fact, not really at all. I use this analogy. It's not an original to me. I got it, stole it from a book this past week. I can't remember the author's name. It's uh, Faith is Like Skydiving is, uh, is the name of the book. If you want to check this out. Here's the illustration. Imagine, if you will, you're in a bookstore, and you're in the spirituality section, and there you see a list of titles up on the shelf. And it's, it's uh, Judaism and Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism. I'm just going to kind of stop there just to kind of hem in the list a little bit. And, and at first, you know, from a distance on the other side of the, of the shelving, they, they look pretty much, the covers, the spines, the titles, all look pretty much the same until you start pulling them off the shelves and start looking at them and reading them. And what you come to find is they're accounting, they're telling of things such as, well, you know, lowly important things like who God is, what the problem of the world is, what the problem of us is, where we came from, where we're going. You realize when you look at these different books, they all look completely different. They're telling completely different stories. In fact, they're not just, it's not just contrast. In some case, cases, it's gross conflicts between what they're saying about those questions. And oh, by the way, there's one more book up on the shelf. And it's a relative newcomer to the, uh, to the store. It's called Religious Pluralism. Religious Pluralism, this book, when you take it off the shelf, it says that all the other books are the same. Now, if you're trying to figure out which one of these books is worth reading and sinking your life into, I can tell you at least this much. That one, Religious Pluralism, you can take it off the shelf and put it in the trash bin. Because if, in fact, contrast and logic means anything, it can't be right because every one of those other accountings do contrast, do conflict. They're not the same. Okay, then where does that leave us? What if, what if one of these books, and let's say it's Christianity, boldly steps forward and says, if the resurrection is true, and you need to listen to me, and just forget the others. Just hinge it all on this. 
if the resurrection is true, if it happened, then you need to listen to me. Well, what if it is? got a Bible with you. I'd ask you to turn with me now to, towards the very end of Mark's Gospel. Uh, Mark, this is uh, the second of the Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that makes this the second of the New Testament books. I'm going to, really, my attention is really being thrust on chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, but I do want to start in verse 15, chapter 15, excuse me, chapter 15, verse 40. So we're going to read Mark 15, 40 through 16, 8. It's not long. Mark 15, 40, that's where we're starting. Hear now the word of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, excuse me, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, we need to know, we need to know if, if this is truly true, really real. If it is, it's, it's a game changer. Um, we ask that you would put us there uh, that day. Help us to, to see what those folks were seeing and hear what those folks were hearing. Um, pray for those of us here this morning who really don't need a whole lot of convincing that you would assure them and um, build them up and strengthen their faith. For those of us here who are hearing some of these ideas for the first time, that you would intrigue them and pull upon their, their hearts uh, even more so. For those of us here who are, are doubting and, and torn with conflict in our hearts regarding these particular things, oh, I pray that you would calm the storm and give us all the ability to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, here's my question. How do you counter charges of conspiracy? How do you counter charges of conspiracy? For example, the, and I'm putting this in quotation marks, lest you think I'm some kind of a, all right, I'll be uncharitable, nut job. Apollo moon landing conspiracy. All right, here's the idea, okay, that the entire thing was a hoax. The six landings between 1969 and 1972 are said to have been, I'm underlining that, said to have been, said to have been a, a, a hoax. Actually, the whole thing was filmed in a Hollywood studio and all the major players were sworn to secrecy. All the astronauts, all the NASA officials, all the members of various branches of the military, all the, the uh, special effects Hollywood studio types, and by the way, all of their friends and all of their family members that they might have talked talk, talk to, excuse me, they were all in on it. And why? What justification is given for this elaborate hoax, this conspiracy? Well, to divert attention from the Vietnam War. Again, this is you know some time ago. To win, win the race to the moon against the Soviets, to save truckloads of money, and then, of course, to avert what seemed to be possible, maybe imminent, certain failure. So goes the hoax. How do you, how do you counter? A hoax like that, well, or, or, or charges of conspiracy like that. Well, you, you would have to ask yourself two things. First, ask yourself, is this reasonable? Is it reasonable that that could have happened, that such a hoax, that such a conspiracy actually could have worked? Is that reasonable? And secondly, you examine the evidence. You examine the evidence of the claims that are, that are being made. Now, why do I bring this up? Why am I talking about hoaxes and conspiracies? Because, because of the charge that is oftentimes made regarding accounts like this in the Gospels that say the Gospels are little more than just simply part of a hoax, of a conspiracy that the members of the early church cooked up so as to prop up and propagate a tall tale, a myth that served their own interests about their dead, martyred leader who they wished was a messiah. Now, how do you counter charges like that? You ask yourself whether or not such a hoax, such a conspiracy is reasonable. Could it actually have been pulled off? Is it possible? And you examine the evidence. And you follow where it leads. And you follow where it leads. And... I think what we'll see here in just the next few minutes is that we actually have been given clear lines of evidence, very clear lines of evidence of Jesus' resurrection. We need to weigh that evidence and follow where it leads. We'll do three things just in the few minutes that we have here this morning. Uh, to examine the scene, to listen to witnesses, and then consider the impact. Examine the scene, listen to the witnesses, and then consider the impact. So first, let's examine the scene. So Friday. Friday, uh, Jesus is dead and buried. There's a body in the tomb. Just a few days later. Sunday, body is missing. Tomb is empty. And no one, absolutely no one, was expecting this. Now let me hit that in two ways. First, big picture, heavy, stratospherical, philosophical kind of thinking. Okay? For the Greek mind, 
in that time, there was no concept whatsoever of a, of a bodily resurrection. The afterlife was looked forward to as a release from, independence of, no longer crippled, depending on the flesh, the body. A release from it, not a reunion with it. That's the Greek mind. So there's no expectation regarding from a Greek mind, a Hellenistic standpoint, and not neither from a Jewish standpoint either. Now, yes, they did certainly believe in the concept of a resurrection, but a general resurrection where it would all come for everyone at the end of time when the Messiah, the Christ, would come and make all things new. There was no idea, no concept of just one individual rising from the dead. I'm just trying to make this case from a big picture, philosophical standpoint. No one's expecting this. Nor those who are on the scene. Those who are there on the ground when it actually happened. Or let me put it this way. We'll start with those who weren't on the ground. Those who weren't on the scene. The apostles. Did you notice that? Did you notice who's not there? Why are they not there? Because they're not expecting anything to happen. They're expecting for the corpse just to continue rotting, as corpses tend to do. Those who were there were these dear women. And now why are they there? Well, Mark tells us, and the other gospel writers do as well. Why are they there? What are they carrying with them? Spices. Spices to do what? To anoint the body. Why? To mask the smell. And what are they talking about? What are they concerned about? What will they say to Jesus when they say? No, they're concerned about this stone, this massive stone that they're not going to be able to roll away in order to get to the corpse. They're not expecting to see him, at least not alive. My point being is that we need to weigh the evidence examine the scene, if you will, and then follow where all this leads. And again, no one is expecting this. Put it this way, if, we were, if you were there, if you were there that day, here's how your day would have gone. Or weekend would have gone anyway. Friday, you saw him crucified, dead, and buried. The body laid in the tomb. You saw where they laid him. Mark makes this, makes this very, very clear. You saw where they laid him. Sunday, you go to the tomb. It just you're, all you have in mind. This is your whole agenda is to put spices, rub them into the body to arrest the decaying process. You're not expecting, you're not anticipating anything else. And yet, when you get there, the tomb is rolled. This is what your eyes see. You're, you see the tomb rolled away. An angel greets you when you go in to check it out. He gives you this message that scares the spit out of you. You, don't, you have no categories for anything like this, and it, you, it sends you running. Why? What's happened? The tomb is empty. It's interesting that um, the early antagonists to the church, in particular Jewish opponents who were trying to refute the claims of the early church, you know what their argument was? They never tried to make the case that the tomb was not empty. Because everyone knew that it was. What they tried to do is explain why it was empty. And their ideas were kind of crazy. But my, how, what, how do you explain it? How do you explain why the tomb was empty? How do you account for that? Examine the evidence. Examine the scene. Follow where this leads us. Let's go a little further. Let's listen to witnesses. 
Because you know, the, the, the message, the Christian message is not, the tomb was empty. Yeehaw! It's Christ is risen. Well, where does that come from? Where does that message come from? Well, you, you can really look at what I could, what could be called source citations. Put it this way. If you want to know, if you want to go further, you need to ask somebody, right? You need to follow up. Well, how do you do that? In eight, in, uh, eight lines, that's why I started back in verse 40, in, over the course of eight lines, Mark three times reports this list of names, the, the names of the women who saw all this. Clearly intentional. Clearly there's some redundancy here. Why? Mark is throwing out the gauntlet. He's, you can see right away, this is not a tall tale. This is not a myth. This is a telling of history, a telling of events. Mark is saying, look, if you want to fact check me, talk to them. They saw it. They'll tell you what they saw. The idea being that when Mark wrote this, these women were still alive. Just go ask them. That's the idea. But this is not the, certainly not the only place that we see an account like this. Seven times in the four Gospels we read of accounts such as this, of, these, of the resurrection. In the book of Acts, Luke tells us right there at the beginning that for the 40 days following Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to numerous groups over the course of that time. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he lists five occasions in which Jesus appeared after the resurrection to people. On one occasion, he said, 500 people at one time. Paul is throwing out a challenge here as well. He's saying, look, if you don't believe me, ask around. 500 people at once saw him. You'll find somebody. Check it out. They'll tell you the same thing that I'm telling you. Weigh the evidence. Listen to the witnesses. Follow where it leads. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. Again, if you'd been there, this is what you would have seen. Mark is painting this, this picture for us here that, look, if you'd spent the time that these, that these women had in Galilee, you would have heard him teaching. You would have witnessed these miracles. If you'd been in Jerusalem on the Mount, or just outside on the Mount of Olives, you would have seen him coming down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, going up into the city on that Palm Sunday, heard the crowds and the shout of the crowds. You would have heard it with your own ears. It's not a myth. It's not a tall tale. It happened. That, over the course of that week, you would have heard him in the conflict that he had, the run-ins, if you will, with the temple authorities. And then on that Friday, you would have seen him bleeding, beaten, nailed to a cross. And then somehow, miraculously, you would have seen him again. A reasonable question to follow up with all this is, well, yeah, that's all fine and good, but can I trust these witnesses? I don't have a lot of time to explore that, but let me just throw this your way. Why write it this way if it didn't happen this way? Why write it this way if it didn't actually happen this way? Just, just two quick things. One, why record these women as the first witnesses of the resurrection, knowing full well that in those days the testimony of women would have been rejected outright. Why record it that way unless it happened? Why record it this way, 
making the leaders of this movement come off as such embarrassments, as such bumblers, as so stubborn and slow of heart, unless, oh wait, unless that's the way it happened. And so that's the way it was recorded. How do you explain it? How do you account for it? Listen to the witnesses. Let's follow the evidence. One last thing. Let's consider the impact. You know, if something like this happened, if a dead man got up out of the grave and then said that one day we could too, if this actually happened, you would think that this would have an effect on people who heard it and saw it, right? There'd be an an impact, a significant impact, a transformational impact on on the lives of people who heard and saw these things. Well, that's exactly what we see here. It's implied just in the fact that Mark is the writer of this gospel. Now, what do we know of Mark? If you go and you read about him in the book of Acts, what you see in Acts 13 is that he was accompanying Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, but at some point he deserted them. Went AWOL. And because of that, just a couple of years later, when it was time to strike out on a second such journey, Paul said, "Uh uh-uh, he's not going with me. But years later, we read of Mark serving alongside Paul. There had been a reconciliation between these two men. And after that, according to very ancient sources, second century, we learned that actually Mark is serving alongside with Peter, and in fact, really, he, he is Peter's mouthpiece in this gospel. Peter is Mark's primary source for the book of Mark. Now, what does that tell you? First, just a little bit of encouragement for, for all of us here. Mark's story, I'm not talking about the story he wrote, I'm just talking about his biography. Mark's story is so encouraging. It tells us that no sin is too great and no one of us sinners is too far gone. Now, by the way, speaking of Peter, what happened with Peter? Peter, up until the point of the resurrection, as with the case with the other apostles, cowardly, bold, but impetuous. You may know that, that actually it's not, it's not really Peter's name. It wouldn't have, If you'd gone to the Jerusalem courthouse and looked for Peter's birth certificate, it wouldn't have been Peter, it would have been Simon. Peter was a nickname that Jesus gave to him. It meant rock. Well, he was anything but. He was rock in name only until the resurrection. And something happened to this man. Something changed. He was transformed by this. No longer cowardly, no longer just so impetuous, but now courageous. Bold in the best sense. A real servant leader who would lay himself out for the sake of the shepherd and his sheep. Weigh the evidence. Consider the impact. Follow where it leads. Easter just may be true. If, again, if you were there, if you'd seen all this, you would have observed these kinds of changes in these individuals. These aren't characters in a novel. These are historical persons who went through radical transformation in their lives. It's especially striking considering as that spread, as that message, as the church grew, the opposition that they faced, this historical fact, reality. 
opposition on the one side from the Romans who said, you must worship Caesar as Lord. They got that pressure from one side and then pressure from the other side in the earliest days from the Jewish authorities saying, what you're saying is blasphemous and that is punishable by death. And yet, despite the two-pronged pressure, the church could not yield, did not yield. They had a hope that was not of this world. And in a, in a grand sense, they were proved to be as invincible as the one whom they worshipped. That movement, Christianity, could not be stopped any more so than Christ could. And so it grew. And so it spread. How do you explain that? How do you account for all that? Weigh the evidence. Consider the impact. Let's follow where it leads. Now, I'm going to wrap this up now. Where does this then lead us? You need to follow where it leads us, but where does it lead us? Remember I started off by saying, what if, you know, got that array of books on the shelf, and what if Christianity boldly steps forward, brashly you might even say, and says, look, I'm telling you, I'm just going to lay it out, I'm going to put it all on the line. If the resurrection is true, then you need to listen to me. What if that's what happens here, and then you come to begin to think and realize Oh, maybe it is real. Maybe the resurrection is true. Where does that leave us? Thus far, I've been trying to appeal by means of argument and propositions, to appeal to your mind, to appeal to your intellect. I'm going to stop, wrap it up, by trying to appeal to your imagination as far as where this leaves us. If the resurrection is true, where does that leave us? C.S. Lewis, in the fourth uh, installment in the Narnia Chronicles, The Silver Chair, tells the story of a young girl named Jill Pole who finds herself mysteriously transported into the land of Narnia. She's in this strange wood. She's dying of thirst, desperately trying to seek out a stream. She finds one and then stops cold in her tracks. And Lewis describes the scene like this. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone, with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it, like the lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it will be after me in a moment, thought Jill, and if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried. She couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion. If only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. It was a deeper, wilder, and stronger kind of voice, a sort of heavy, golden one. 
It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, she said. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was now driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished. Now, she realized that this would be, on the whole, the most dangerous thing of all. What is Lewis saying? That in the land of Narnia, there is no other stream but Aslan's that will quench your thirst. And the same is true in this land. There is no other stream but Christ. Where is the evidence, the where are the lines of evidence of the resurrection taking us, if we will but follow them, to Christ, the living Christ, to this reality, this proclamation, Easter is true, Christ is risen. We have but to drink and find life in Him. Let's pray together. This is news like any, unlike any other, O oh Lord. We ask that you would help us to hear it. To see what those first witnesses saw through their eyes. To hear through their words. You have come. You have died. You have risen, just as we have proclaimed in the creeds, just as we have sung in the songs, the greatest event in the history of the world since the creation of the world. May it be Easter that shapes and forms us. All our priorities and the hard choices, our inner strength in the course of hardship, an abiding hope in the worst of suffering, Christ is risen. That is music to our ears. Oh, we pray for the grace to embrace it more fully, 
and live it out. We pray this th- these things in His name. Amen.